Hello everyone, welcome to another episode of Tennis with an Accent. This is Saqib. The season's just uh, has maybe two more tournaments left. One started in Paris and then we head to the uh, World Tour Finals in London. Uh, we have the uh, honor of hosting a special guest today, uh, Merth Ertunga, who's been writing about tennis for quite some time, a former player himself. Uh, welcome, Merth, uh, taking time out on a Monday night to do this podcast. Hello, Saqib. Great to be here. Well, pleasure is all ours. Uh, you, your analytical uh, discussions of tennis on Twitter are very well known. Your articles are very informative. So I'll just try to, you know, pick some knowledge here uh, of information that you carry and let's exchange some notes. Thank you. And I believe you, uh, you know the game pretty well yourself. So uh, don't sell yourself short. <laughs> okay, I'll, I'll try. <laughs> so, so recently we concluded uh, some big tournaments uh, one is a WTF finale in Singapore, and then a couple events on the men's side. So let's talk about the WTF first. Uh, Caroline Wozniacki coming out on top uh, in a topsy-turvy week. Uh, the field was very even when this whole thing started. How surprised are you with the ending with Wozniacki over Williams? Uh, I'm surprised in the sense that I did not expect... Um, I did not expect... Well, it, with Venus Williams, you cannot say I did not expect because she will take... She will take your words around and slap you in the face with it every time if you ever say that, and uh, which was the case this week if anybody said that about Venus. But uh, I did not expect, uh, quite frankly, um, uh, Wozniacki to be here. I, uh, for, you know, from, uh, from that, she was in the red group, if I, if I got the colors correct. But uh, there, in that red group, there was Simona Halep and, uh, Elena, uh, and uh, I believe Elena Svitolina and Caroline Garcia. And, uh, and when uh, when the matches started, okay, she beat Svitolina six two six zero quite uh, quite comfortably. And uh, seed seed wise, you know, you would think that uh, Simona Halep and Wozniacki would make um, would make the um, the semifinals from that group when it all started. But then there was that match that uh, that um, that uh, Wozniacki played against um, her first match, I believe, against. Um, Svitolina that she won very comfortably and played very well. Granted, Svitolina was not on top of her game, and then she went on and uh, and I believe in the na- in the next match she played Simona Halep and and won with the same comfort level. And once I saw those two matches, uh, I I had the feeling like this was going to be a special week for Wozniacki. I did not expect to get to the finals if you ask me in the beginning of the tournament. But once I saw those two matches, I felt like um, like she could very well get to the finals, even after losing to Garcia in the next match, which was a thrilling match. Garcia coming back uh, from 3-5 down on both second and third sets. Even then, I felt like Wozniacki had a good, had a good chance to go to the final and win the tournament because she, uh, she was playing quite aggressive despite the court being slow. And uh, her footwork, uh, it's, it's hard to differentiate between a player's footwork from one tournament to another. But I'm not sure if she, uh, if she was extra motivated for this tournament or, um, or, or, or she wanted to perhaps put an exclamation point on, on a lot of criticism that comes, on, that comes her way over the years for not having won a major. But her motivation, her focus, her focus and her her tuning in during the points, which reflected in her footwork, were uh, very impressive. And I think ultimately 
I would, uh, if if I had to give credit to one aspect of Wozniacki's game for winning uh, for winning the WTA finals, that it would be her footwork. It's interesting you said. I mean, in 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 her group, there's some excellent movers in uh, Simona Halep and Svitolina. So not only she came out from that group, uh, and then uh, she went on to win one of the biggest titles of her career. Uh, just stick, uh, you know, some more thoughts on Wozniacki. You think this is a career-changing win? Uh, in this, uh, you know, very uh, equally contested WTA year. You think uh, this will be a stepping stone for Wozniacki for things to come in 2018? Yes, I believe so. Uh, I, I believe Wozniacki, first of all, I, I, I'm, um, I am uh, one of those who believes that, uh, who believe that uh, what, the day will come where she will win a major. And, uh, and I think this is definitely a, a step in the right direction, without a doubt. Uh, but not only that, also to be able to do it in, uh, you know, among the, the, the best players in the field with such, um, uh, such determination, I would, uh, I, I would have to, I would have to say that, uh, for example, if, if we were to just take her match, uh, in the finals against, against Venus Williams, you know, in that second set, when she let Venus come back from five, zero to five, four. Uh, the 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 Wozniacki of old might have uh, might have folded or might have actually continued the trend of uh, the trend of nerves that she displayed in those during those four games, especially in the second game. She even had an argument with the umpire that was completely unnecessary. And uh, but uh, but that five four, she knew how to regroup and stay focused. Granted, she did get some help from Venus, who missed an important forehand to uh, I believe it was a deuce point. But uh, but still. Uh, Wozniacki in that 10th game mentally was a different person than she was in the four previous games that let that let Venus back into the match to 5-4 and that is not and I'm not even mentioning the fact that she was returning now you mentioned the two players who who had excellent footworks also Svitolina and Halep and yes if uh, if you ask me who has the best uh, footwork in the WTA I would I would go with Halep especially in the in terms of uh, small steps on the spot to get around the ball, to get into position, to hit the right shot. I'm not necessarily talking about side-to-side, wide, wide, sharp-angled, uh, uh, you know, the kind of movement to defend against balls that are angled sharp outside the court. But I'm rather talking about fast-paced balls that come back to you, that stay within the limits, within the parameters of the singles line. I would put Halep's footwork against uh, any player in the WTA in the last 30 years, including Aranza Sanchez Vicario, who had phenomenal footwork. Sorry, I lost you but, there. You uh, said but including this who? Week, uh... in, including Sanchez Vicario, Aranza Sanchez Vicario from from uh, you know from uh, a couple of decades back, the Spanish player who had phenomenal footwork. But uh, but I, but this week Wozniacki's footwork to me was right uh, right up there with. Uh, with the best in the world. Uh, another person who had a similar, you know, uh, who had to endure similar pain that was Niaki and Safina and some of the other girls endured when they became number one and never won a major is Simona Halep. So let's make the segue into her year. She won 45 matches, came close uh, to winning a major. And uh, finally, you know, she ended the year as number one. So uh, what do you think of her week? Uh, when the tournament started, it looked like she might, you know, advance and just... Uh, play a deep role in this event, but uh, she didn't make make it out of the group. But she still year, uh, ends the year as number one. So your thoughts on that? 
Well, here's the problem with, 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 with this. It's a perception problem. Uh, this week, there was a lot of talk about Halep finishing the year number one. Does she deserve it? She didn't win a major, etc., etc. But that that talk would have happened regardless of how she did in this uh, in, in the WTA finals. So, for example, Sakib, let's imagine a scenario where Halep did win the WTA finals, and we are talking about a well-deserved number one ranking for Halep. Let's say you and I are talking about it. I still guarantee you there's going to be a substantial percentage of WTA followers in the world who are going to argue that Halep never having won a major should not be the number one player in the world. So that kind of, that type of discussion is unavoidable when a player doesn't win a major. But what fueled it further, in other words, what made it um, perhaps unfair towards Halep is the fact that she didn't do that well this week. So therefore, it's kind of like there is a problem that can, but uh, but but uh, but it's not a major problem. But then something happens recently that turns it into a major problem, and that is the, that is the situation with the discussion around Halep being number one. Now, if we now if we pull back from the from from the emotions of this just this last week, and we look at what Halep deserved to become number one, yes, she definitely deserves to be number one. She is extremely consistent. She played, uh, she, I, I believe she went to the semifinals of just about every major tournament, uh, except, uh, did she make this? No, not at, not at the U.S. Open, obviously, because she lost in the first round uh, to, to Sharapova in a, in a thrilling match. But other, other than the U.S. Open, she went to the semifinals or finals of every single major tournament in the world. And, uh, and, and, and you know, she, she went to, she was in the finals of... Uh, French Open, Rome, Cincinnati, and Beijing. And, uh, you know, if other players want to make, or if, if, let's put it this way, other players would never stand there and make this argument. But if fans of other players, man, want to make the argument that she, that, that she doesn't deserve to be number one, show me another player who's shown her consistency. I don't see one. So I think no, I totally agree. And, uh, you know, this is a very parallel conversation, like you rightfully said, that's been going on forever, that uh, if you are number one, you have to win a major. But then I, I, I believe that I also talked about this in the last podcast uh, with Susie, who was a guest. And I think it's okay to make a case for both if someone is suppose, supposedly winning two majors, but the other person uh, ends up winning the year-end ranking. I think both are well-deserved. You don't have to win the biggest tournaments, but... You know, like Federer said, the point disparity is even though if you don't win, uh, like you said, Halep went deep in majors, and a lot of time those ranking points are needed to for you to finish the year as number one. So I'm totally you know on the side that it's well deserved. If someone else wins a major and is not uh, number one, you can make a case for them as a co MVP. But uh, rankings are rankings; it's a race, you know, about points. Whoever finishes and accumulates the most points is a deserving world number one. So more credit to Halep. Yes, and and what and I would like to add one thing too. Let's also remember that uh, Halep did the, you know, Halep. If if we if there was a if there were a category called you know perseverance, Halep would be right up there with Venus Williams for 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 2017. I mean, she she lost a a, a horrible match to Sharapova, horrible from the standpoint of her of, of her camp. You know, I I would never want to be on the losing end of a match mm -hmm. like the one she lost against Ostapenko in the French Open finals 
or the one she lost against Sharapova in the U.S. Open uh, first round. I would never want to be on the losing end of that. Those are horrible losses if you're on the losing end. And yet she recovered from both of them. And she beat both of those players actually later in the year. She she knew to come back and beat. So there has she she has shown a lot of growth in 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 terms of uh, in terms of uh, her results in her game. And uh, and and one more thing about one more thing about the um, the the what, what you mentioned also. And um, winning majors is is obviously very very important um, this day and age. But if we had the same situation, if we had the same situation, let's say it's also a little bit sign of the times. The fact that there is this, uh, I believe, you know, I guess Muguruza fans would be the, the ones to uh, to wants to make this argument. Uh, but uh, um, if there is this uh, impression nowadays, and this is a 21st century impression, that winning majors is far, far more important than anything else. And yes, it has become this way now. But this has not always been the case in tennis. It's 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 just a it's just a sign of the last uh, less than two. It's been only at the turn of the century that this this has become an important point. The number of majors won. Well, one more thought on this before we move ahead. Uh, a few years ago, Federer had a chance uh, in 2014 to challenge, you know, as number one, and he did not win a major. But he's Roger Federer, and I'm his biggest fan. But nobody would say he didn't deserve the number one ranking just because he did not win a major. And similarly. If Venus Williams, you know, was in this position without winning a major, and nobody would say the same thing. So I think a lot of times the narrative about these Wozniacki or, uh, you know, Safina or Dementieva, the girls who did not win, sometimes we hold it too much against them. I think as fans, that's why we need to give these people a break and actually proper respect that, like Martina Navratilova herself said, uh, finishing year end number one is harder sometimes than winning a two-week Grand Slam because this is like a cumulative effort of accumulating you know ranking points in a 10 or 11 month period so halep is far deserving i mean in every category yes and and navratilova has always been a fan of that view anyway i remember she defended the uh, wozniacki back then too when she was ranked number one and navratilova felt like she deserved it too although she never she never won a major and, uh, and you know it's a, it, when you're talking about wta rankings you're not talking about one player versus the other you're talking about a player versus the whole field and that's what you have to take into 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 account it's just like in any other sports you know in sports where there's a point system a team might beat b team two or three times during the season but if b team wins the league b team is the best player of that league even though b, b team may have lost to a team two or three times. Same thing here. Um, just one tournament or two player comparison should not supersede how a player did against the whole field. And if we take that into account, Simona Halep deserves number one. And how do you see the new coaching arrangement with Andre Powell helping out? Would Darren Cahill stay? Is this something they want to build on now because she's number one? So next thing is they want her uh, to achieve that goal, which is to win a major. Yes. Okay, so uh, this is a situation and you can call me old school if you want to, but uh, there's this uh, this this situation that uh, you can have two or three accomplished names as in your coaching team mm-hmm. baffles me a little bit. I, I and, and it baffles me not in the sense that I think it's bad, but I would love to know how the dynamics work. What happens when two coaches don't agree with each other? 
I mean, for example, um, you know, Roger Federer, let to, to take to take the example of a, of a top player. Federer has um, Ljubicic and Severin Luti, and, she, and 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 he had in the past uh, two or three other players. You know, Stefan Edberg, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. What if one one doesn't agree with the other, or what if the player doesn't agree with one or the other or both? Uh, I I just don't see. I would love to be a fly on the wall and listen to those conversations. Uh, now, having said that, Andrei Pavel is a tennis brain. I've known him. Uh, I don't know him personally, but I know of him. I've seen him many times back in his, in his playing playing years. Um, I've I know of him. I know people who know him, and and the guy's tennis knowledge is five star. And Pavel can bring uh, a lot to any players. Any player, let alone Halep, who's, you know, he's, he's her countryman. And I just don't know how it will work with, uh, with, with Cahill and him. It's, it's a very, very fair analysis. I think we've also discussed this many times, uh, you know, the, with the all-star coaches like Becker and uh, Edberg and now Lendl. So these are apparently like uh, something like head coaches you have in basketball or football. And then uh, the other coaches do heavy lifting for, you know, the other maybe seven, eight months a year, these big coaches show up. I'm sure like it's very interesting to see how the dynamic works when there's like this. Now, here's, here's, how, here's sometimes how some people do it, Saki. What they'll do is they'll have a one full-time coach and one coach that will, or, or not even one coach that, that goes and comes back, but occasionally they will hire an extra coach for a month, for, for maybe five weeks, maybe six weeks or maybe four weeks, just to have an extra set of eyes if something is not going well during that period. And that coach steps in or joins the team for about a three or four week period or a, or a month and a half period and helps, uh, j- just offers an extra point of view which may help a, a certain player get over the hump or learn a particular shot or develop a particular skill. But uh, But to continuously have two coaches or three coaches running the team over over a period of a year is is um, is a dynamic that uh, I'm still uh, I, I still have yet to to uh, to tackle. Okay, it's, it's it's very interesting point you raise, and I don't want to use the word that I'm challenging you, but I want to ask you what you just said, and that's kind of something I cannot understand what happens in the grass court season, like Filipus is working with Kokinakis, Wawrinka had I think what Krychek. And last year it was McEnroe with Raonic. So all these guys, stay Wawrinka, right? He has his set ways. He plays his tennis. He's a Grand Slam champion. Everything's working fine with Magnus Norman. So what is it uh, someone like a Krychek can add in two or three weeks? Or it was like Paul Anacon, sorry, this year with Wawrinka. So in, in a short grass season, which is like three tournaments leading into Wimbledon, total of five weeks, what kind of changes can they work on? And then what's the window that those changes can be executed in a big tournament? Sure, sure. First of all, let's. I think everyone, coach or fan or uh, or players, will agree that uh, a coach coming in for three or five weeks cannot adjust, uh, cannot make you know major changes on your technique or change a shot. But what here's what here's what could happen though. For example, you could have someone like, and, and this is probably everyone listening to this right now, or you and I, or any other tennis fan or coach. Uh, probably has watched a player over an extended period of time and wondered, why isn't this player doing this? Why isn't a player doing X? Okay, And that X, it's possible that the player's coach, 
who is uh, who, who who's who might be who might be a very good coach and who might have a very good um, outlook on the on the game of tennis and who might be a fantastic teacher of the game of tennis it's possible that that one x that you and i are able to see has escaped that coach that is possible okay and what that what someone and like anacone might do it might he might come in and say to to uh, to the coach and the player you know i've always wondered why you haven't done x and it's if it's something that happens to that 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 turns out to be something that that coach and the player have never considered not not because they're not good player or coaches or because they can't they don't have high iq but it's possible that that it just escaped them and that's where that uh, that um, that that third coach who comes in for a three or five week period might say hey we we still have two or three weeks before before such and such tournament so i believe this is something you should add to your game i you know you guys you guys didn't think about it so what let's let's work on this right now you have the tools you have the technique you already hit this shot or that shot in your game it's just that you don't use it in such and such pattern to prepare the point in such and such way and that's where that coach can inject that 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 fresh thinking or that fresh pattern into a player's game that didn't exist before now notice it doesn't change the 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 player's technique or we're not changing we're not making a major change to the game we're just that that coach is just for those for that period of three or five weeks is adding a dimension to that player's game that didn't exist before simply because it happened to escape the one coach that that you know the 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 set of two eyes that that one coach had it's possible okay makes sense uh so let's stick with Wawrinka now a uh, big announcement this week uh, from Magnus Norman uh, ending one of the most impactful partnerships in tennis uh, i think if uh, you put all the super coaches aside this was the job that was the most impressive not only he turned around a guy who had the talent but you know lacking self belief in big moments and where does Wawrinka go from here and where does Norman go from yeah, here yeah first of all i agree with you that what magnus norman has done with wawrinka is simply phenomenal and uh, i i i seriously um, if you asked anybody uh, in 2011 or 2012 uh, if wawrinka would be that or if you told them well you know what stan wawrinka will have three major titles and he'll be considered an elite player by the year 2017 i'm not sure if anybody would have taken you seriously okay so let's i think stan would have believed himself <laughs> exactly i mean let, let let let's be honest right let's just say it as it is and and it's not like wawrinka was a bad player in 2011 and 2012 it's it's just that uh, it's just that magnus norman helped him leap to the next level which many players by the way during wawrinka's time have tried to do and failed many many of them but uh, but Wawrinka didn't and um, and this is thanks to to Magnus Norman who knew how to channel who uh, who knew how to channel and who got through to Wawrinka in order to 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 channel his strength which are his power and uh, and his determination and his belief and these are the things that Norman did very well now to, to, to specifically to your question um this is going to har- maybe sound harsh for uh, Wawrinka fans but if i'm looking at it from uh, magnus norman's point of view professional point of view i'm not sure at this point 
how much more I can add to uh, to to Stan Wawrinka or how much further I can go with Stan Wawrinka because of, because of his age because because I I believe Norman squeezed out every ounce of talent that Wawrinka has from his current game from his existing game he's not going to become a serving volleyer he's not going to all of a sudden become a touch player this is what we've seen in the last three years is what Wawrinka does and he's done it in the best way possible for the last three or four years now he's he's an older player he's going he's starting to have physical issues if I believe from uh, Magnus Norman's point of view, it was the right time to stop. I don't know if it's good for Wawrinka, but, uh, but you know, if, if I'm Wawrinka, maybe uh, from, from Wawrinka's selfish point of view, maybe it's not. But uh, I, if I'm Mike Magnus Norman at this point, I would, I would seriously wonder how much further I can, I can accomplish with Wawrinka. I don't think he will win another major. And I don't think he will. Uh, and, and I don't think he will win. Uh, I don't think he will become anytime soon top, the, the, the number one player or number two player. Not with uh, Djokovic and Murray coming back next year. Not with the way Federer and Nadal are playing. And certainly not with the way with the with the, with the new group of players that are now coming up. I believe. I believe it's it, it, it's a player past his prime. So any uh, let's get into the speculation business. You know, you follow tennis a lot, so. Given Wawrinka, you know, of course, he's going to bring someone in. I, yeah, I just did with Wawrinka. I just speculated. <laughs> well, watch him, watch him, watch him uh, make me turn out wrong and win a couple of couple of majors next year. Uh, who would you circle down as some names that you know we might see associated with Wawrinka, as far as coaching goes? He tried Lundgren, then after Lundgren, he went to Magnus Norman. So who who's going to be who could be next on the coaching block for Stan Wawrinka? Oh, I think that I think there are I, I believe there are a lot of good coaches. The the the, the thing with uh, with Wawrinka actually, I I do believe someone like Paul Anikon would work well with Wawrinka. It doesn't matter that Paul Anikon himself had a, had a completely different game than uh, than Wawrinka. That doesn't matter. Is uh, Anikon has good knowledge of the of the game of tennis. But but the reason why Anikon came to my my mind first, and it doesn't have to be him, but it has to be someone of that pedigree. Is that it, it needs to be someone who's not uh, who's not uh, who's not in love with the camera, who's uh, who's who's calm, who takes his time, who takes his time to accurately analyze situations, who's not a, who's not in, impulsive, and who will develop a one-on-one relationship with uh, with Wawrinka. To, in which Wawrinka can invest himself, and uh, and and I, and I think it needs to be someone like Paul Anacone. Not 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 for example, a Boris Becker, in my opinion, would not work with uh, with um, with Wawrinka. I don't believe, say, someone like I'm trying to think of I mean, someone like, mm. for example, Connors, Jimmy Connors tried tried himself tried coaching for a little while. I don't think that would work. So you know, someone like Lendl. Ivan Lendl could work, someone like Lendl perhaps, but uh, but uh, I, I I do believe it needs to be someone calm, measured, cool-headed, and someone who's not uh, quick to the to the trigger, so to speak. No, that makes sense. I was also thinking after Lundgren, he went to Norman, so I was thinking, yeah, Anacon is a great uh, suggestion. I was thinking he could still stay, you know, with the Swedish flag, uh, you know, talk to maybe someone like Thomas Enquist, who was assistant. Yes. Coaching yeah. the Cup, or even Nicholas Kulti, who's part of the, I think, uh, some Swedish coaching academy. So, 
Yeah, that's okay, both both of those are excellent names. Yes, yes, both of those would work. So yeah, let's see how what the year brings for Stan Wawrinka. And uh, while we're speculating coaching uh, choices, Novak Djokovic also, I think last week said some somewhere that he's looking for someone to join Andre Agassi as a full-time coach. And he's not uh, hell-bent on bringing just someone who was former world number one, but he has few shortlisted names which he didn't reveal. So let's see what happens in that group because that group needs a full-time team besides yes. Djokovic and Agassi. Of course, of course. And um, and here here's the thing. that If Agassi was going to be a full-time coach for in the true sense of the word, I believe it would be fine as long as he, of course, he hired a not he hired a trainer, uh, perhaps a dietitian, you know, the, the, that full team around it. But uh, but I don't think Agassi is ready to be a full time coach. So yeah, uh, this, so this, this is in, exactly exactly. So this is precisely why uh, Djokovic needs a full time coach. Agassi is certainly not enough, and uh, that it's going to be an interesting decision. And the reason why it's hard to predict that one is because. We don't know. It would be the same if 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 Rafael Nadal did this. We 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 you know they've been with the same people uh, throughout most of their throughout all their career almost, and 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 and, you, and all of a sudden you know they 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 come out of their it's kind of like they come out of their cocoon, and all of a sudden for someone who's looking from the outside who's never um, who's never considered or seen them work with someone else. It's hard to predict what uh, what what type of a coach would suit his needs the best, but uh, his full time coach needs to be certainly uh, someone who's not in the spotlight because Djokovic, they're running Djokovic's uh, career or or you know the week to week living and traveling with Djokovic um, is a full time effort, and and I don't believe a, a a name in the spotlight can do that. Yeah, I think before uh, you already said in the early part of the podcast that sometimes uh, the big coaches are, you know, how the teams work. And I always, I'm old school too. And I believe Severin Luthi and Marian Vaida and even in Nadal's case, Francisco Roy, these guys are the cornerstones. They do the hard work. And uh, of course, that Nadal's exactly uncle is right. the coach. But the super yeah. coaches only travel for 14, 15 weeks a year because they're all superstars and they have busy lives outside of tennis. So I think yeah. Novak Djokovic would bring someone who's going to be more committed, say, for a 30-35 week, and then Agassi would fill in the blanks for majors and maybe big tournaments like World Tour Finals and Indian Wells. And uh, yeah. I think, yeah, let, it'll be interesting to when, see who comes in. When, when, yeah, when you have an Agassi in your coaching team, I don't believe the next person should be a high-profile person. The, the, yeah, the, 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 the next person too much. should be a low-profile. Yeah. <laughs> it's going to be too too hard to coexist. So that brings us to the other part, because uh, it's the ATP side of things. So Roger Federer, uh, you know, he's been known to make some wise decisions about his health, about his scheduling. He has the luxury of playing any number of tournaments because, you know, he's earned so many matches on the tour. He's a tour veteran. So did you expect him to pull out of uh, Bercy after he won in Basel? Because now he probably thinks number one is out of question anyway. So he wants to focus on the World Tour Finals and then uh, be healthy for 2018. Yes, it was not a it, it was not a big surprise that he pulled out of Bear, that he pulled out of Bercy. I I actually thought for a second that uh, that because uh, because he didn't particularly play well in in the in the finals. In fact, that was probably a, uh, I would consider that match between Del Potro and um, and Roger Federer in the finals of uh, of uh, Swiss indoors to be medium quality at best in in terms of the tennis being played. Certainly from Roger's side. 
and uh, and and there was another match I believe against Manorino. He didn't really um, play that well either. But then on the other hand, he played a couple of other good matches. I, I just I thought for a second because Roger Federer is a player who um, who rides on confidence. He 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 loves to go into a tournament riding high on confidence, and uh, who you know riding high on confidence not only in terms of his game but physic but, but physically also. And uh, I I felt like uh, the physical part of it from the physical part of it it's a good decision that he doesn't play uh, uh, Paris. But I'm not sure that he will feel that confident going into London if the last tournament that he played was the was the tournament in Basel. But I'm, I'm assuming that he had to make a choice, and then the choice to 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 pass Paris was was the one that made more sense. I am sure that he himself wishes that uh, that that he played uh, whether he played just Paris or just Basel. I'm sure he wishes that he play he won the tournament or he played very well in his last few matches going into London, and that will not be the case in in, in this situation. But you know, London begins. Round robin match, his first match, he plays a very good match and wins in straight sets, and boom, he's right back there with, in terms of confidence. So, so that could all go away. But he's 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 not going to. I don't think I don't think the match against Del Potro, even though he won, particularly gave him confidence on on his game, on his ability to finish off. Yes, but I think that's something that Roger Federer always had. Uh, I thought uh, slightly different. I think he was uh, pushing himself too hard because he's playing at home and he's lost to Del Potro twice. Mm-hmm. So I think that was riding at the back of his mind, and that's why yes. we saw some uncharacteristic uh, errors in the first set. Or whenever he had the lead, he gave the lead back because he was to give full respect to Del Potro. Del Potro was causing a lot of problems too, but I think every time Federer got the lead, he kind of squandered it back because maybe he was uh, you know too urgent about it. Anyway, now he's made the decision. Uh, let me ask you one more question on Federer. If suppose mm-hmm. things had gone his way, and if he would have ended the year as number one. Would that be held against him that he skipped clay, or at this stage of his career, you know, it was all about maximizing his chances? Well, you know, you will always find in 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 the world we call fandom, you will always find people who who hold things against certain players or certain players that are considered rivals of their favorite players themselves. But uh, to sit there and hold something against Federer because he didn't play the clay court season is absurd. It's really one word that comes to my mind. It's absurd, especially if we're looking at it from the context of his accomplishments. In other words, if it's used, if the fact that he skipped clay court season is used as an argument to diminish his accomplishment this year, it's, it's, it's just simply absurd. I don't know how, I don't know what else to say. And, and in the scenario that you put forward, uh, if you put forth, if if had he played Paris and won Paris, and say had he then gone on and won uh, London and finished the year not ranked number one, what what would playing the clay court have changed anyway? What, what, I mean, what what would have uh, playing the clay court season have changed anyway? He would have finished number one anyway. So uh, exactly. it's, uh, it's you know it's it's a mute. It, it's not only a mute argument, but it, it's it's an absurd argument. It's an absurd argument. It's, it's, no, it's, it's, he, it's, as, as a player, he has the right to choose to do that, and uh, and uh, and it worked. It worked. You know, at the, uh, also you have to look at it from. You can't. We don't. I don't like the the uh, the idea of using uh, ends to justify the means. 
But I don't think in, in his case that's what it was. You know, we cannot now say, well, the ends justify the means, because look, he won Wimbledon, and he did very well, and, you know, he was, okay, he got, he got injured in Canadian Open, but he reached the finals, and now he just won in China, so he did very, well, no, we, that's not a case of ends justify the means. This, this is a strategic decision that Federer made. It's not a decision that he made on the spot, and then later on won Wimbledon, so thus, he turned out correct. No, this is, this is precisely what he had in mind, and it worked. And at, at age 36, he cannot play 80 matches in a year. I mean, no way. And we know how the back, how his back backfired in Montreal, and he had to skip uh, Cincinnati and came in uh, New York a little bit underprepared, and you know how it went. So, but that again, uh, at the same time, of the you know, it doesn't diminishing diminish anything Rafael Nadal has achieved, because he himself you know has made some sort of a comeback this year, has won a hard court major. Uh, you know, since uh, winning in New York in 2013. So he's, again, like a very well-deserved number one. Yeah, he's lost to Federer four times this year, which has never happened before in his career when Federer has the upper hand. But I think Nadal played a full year and was more consistent, and he just, uh, in the end, uh, gathered or accumulated more points. And uh, he's going to finish year number one for the fourth time, so that's a very well-deserved feat. Yes, and and again, you know, I, I totally agree with what you said. And uh, I, I just uh, a minute ago I said that it would be absurd to make an uh, argument against Federer for not having played the clay court season. And he, having said that, it would be just as absurd to make an argument against Nadal for being number one. Just like you said, he played a full year. He's got uh, he's got important titles. He's got two majors, and uh, he's in the finals of he was in the finals of a third major. And again, just like in uh, in, in Simona Halep's case. You know, you cannot, uh, the, the head-to-head record against uh, uh, Roger this year, he lost, uh, he's, he's 0-4, and uh, you cannot count that against him because, uh, once again, it's against the whole field. When you're ranked number one in WTA or in ATP, that means you were the best, best player that year against the whole field. We're, yep. not talking about one, we're not talking about one player versus another. You know, we're, we're, you, you and I cannot tomorrow say, oh, let's put... Uh, player A and player B on the court and decide who the best player in tennis is this year. No. We, what we can do is, is have, a, have a set of tournaments for 12 months, a bunch of tournaments, and have all the players participate in them, and, and whoever does the best overall against the whole field gets that number one position, and that's what, that's what Rafa got. So he's, 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 he also deserves his number one ranking. Absolutely. So, uh, Bersi is one of the tournaments that Nadal hasn't won in his illustrious career. So now he's here. He's won, he needs to win one m- match, and the number one ranking is all his. So how do you see this week playing out for him with uh, no Federer, no Djokovic? I mean, I know Nadal doesn't, you know, he's fully focused on the goal. But do you see him, you know, checking this box and trying to win Bersi? Uh, no, I don't. I, I, I don't. I don't see it as a given at all. Although I should, because that's what that's what Roger and, and Rafa have done all year. So it, it, logic would dictate that uh, we should we should definitely chalk him in as the favorite to win. And perhaps he is. I, I don't know if I don't know who the favorites are. But uh, in my mind, he's, this is not a given. It is. It is not going to be just a. A walkthrough for Rafa. I know that uh, Paris indoors was considered the fastest surface on the ATP tour for many years in the in the late 2000s and early 2010s. 
Now, I, I believe they slowed it down in the 2013, 14, and 15 years. In fact, I asked this question on social media, and uh, I forgot uh, the person's name, but they answered because I haven't been to to Bercy the last uh, three years. I've been to, I've been to it the four years prior to that in a row, but then in 2013, 14, and 15, I haven't been able to go. And uh, and I've heard that they slowed down the, the surface. But now, apparently, this year, it's quick again. I, I heard from just someone who was there just uh, yesterday morning uh, that the surface is back to the old um, uh, quicker days. And I think in that case, it's not a given for him. He can, he can uh, no, players can, can outplay him in an indoor fast surface uh, type of situation. If they, you know, it's, it's clear. I probably, I probably will not need to repeat what, what they need to do. But, uh, you know, as long as they serve big, they hit, they hit big. And make shots and get get a little bit lucky here and there. The, they definitely have a chance to beat uh, Rafa. No, it's not a given. So who who do you think uh, with only you know a few days uh, left in Bercy? Who who do you think will wrap up the field for the World Tour final in London with uh, Karina Busta and uh, Goffin uh, trying to lock in those last two spots? And then there's uh, Sam Querrey and Kevin Anderson who haven't really taken advantage of uh, Karina Busta's lack of form or some injury that he's carrying. And then Juan Martin Del Potro. Is also, you know, closing the gap, but this is the week that's going to decide. So, if I'm yeah. going to ask you to make two names, who gonna, who, who are those two names that will complete the field in London? Well, you know, I would have to actually. I would need to. I know I have it somewhere here. I think that I think Goffin has the best chance because I do like his draw, and he's uh, he's playing um, uh, in the first round. First of all, in the first round, he's playing against the winner of Manorino and David Ferrer. Now you're going to now you're going to think well Ferrer is an accomplished player in fact he won Paris before he won he won this very tournament before and and Manorino is a dangerous player but I think David Goffin has the right game to beat either of them and uh, I'm not sure that if uh, if Goffin standing on the baseline taking balls early and attacking hitting his flat shots I think can out rally both of them in, in 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 the indoor environment of the Bercy Hall, but uh, and and then later on he would have to play uh, the winner of Sanga and Beneteau Beneteau who just beat by the way um, hours ago um, Denis Shapovalov, and uh, so he's going to play Sanga, and then uh, Goffin would need to play Sanga. Now there's an interesting match, you know I think, and I think it's going to come down to that. And uh, and Goffin Goffin has de- definitely um, the game to beat Sanga even. Even Sangha on the indoor uh, on the indoor tournament at Bercy, and um, the, uh, the I don't think Karina Busta will make it. And um, here's why: Karina Busta, or throughout his career, has sometimes shown um, a lot of ups and downs. And he's playing a very dangerous player, Nicolas Mahut, uh, who who always who always seems to play well in France, and he's and he's got a very dangerous game for a fast surface. I, I'm not sure how much Karenio Busta can um, can. Uh, I, I don't see Karenio Busta getting it past Mayu and Sam Query at the same time. Whereas I do see David Goffin a lot easier. Uh, Goffin's path as being a lot uh, a lot less rocky versus the winner of Manorino and Ferrer and then Joel Wilfried Song. And, and Goffin also has, uh, I think, what 280 points more than. Karina Busta, who's after, you know, yes. just behind him. So Goffin probably... Yeah, he may not even match. need... He, yeah, I think he should he should be safely right. through, no doubt. Let's talk about Luca Pui, who probably will not make this cut, 
but uh, he's someone who's oozing of talent. He won yesterday over Jovali Sanga in uh, in Vienna. Uh, what do you think of this guy's potential? And you think will he be among the elite players uh, come 2018? Yes. Uh, I, okay. Well, let's define the term elite first. I, 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 if we're talking, when we say elite, if we're talking about the, the um, Roger Federer, Rafael Sorry, let Nadal. Me, let, let, let me rephrase that. Will he be okay. among the challengers who will challenge the elite? Yes. Yes, I'm t- I, I completely agree with that. He will be among the challengers. Uh, you know, barring injury, of course. You know, if, if he stays healthy, yes, he will definitely be among the challengers. And he's got, uh, here's the good thing about, uh, about Pui. Second, that I'm that I'm very impressed with, and, and Puy is actually someone that I've been following for a long time because I I used to live in France during his junior years, and uh, I I even um, I even uh, used to travel to some junior tournaments out of interest and just watch matches. So I uh, I've seen Puy play, um, you know, in junior events in in France before even he started uh, playing professional, and his rise or the development of his game has been very steady. And his and his strokes are incredibly sound. If you know, if, when you watch him play, technically he is very sound, and he was that sound already uh, in, in his junior year. It's just a matter of his body strength catching up with with his technique. And because his technique is sound, he's able to play all types of games on all types of surfaces. He has touch. He can hit the ball flat. He can top spin it. He's serve. He can kick the. He can kick his second serve, or he can slice it. He can hit a flat serve down the middle. It, uh, I think it's just a matter of time before he be, he he breaks into. Not only he challenges the elite, but uh, I don't know. In a, in a, in three or four years' time, if we see him among the elite, we shouldn't be surprised. He's uh, and, and he can win all on all surfaces. If I'm not wrong, he won. Didn't he win on? Uh, yeah, I think he did on, on all three surfaces on this all three year. All surfaces. Yeah, he got, yes. he got a title each. Yeah, I'm, I'm not surprised at all. Some uh, soft hands. He can do change of pace, which uh, is not easy on, in this day and age. He changes the pace exactly. frequently. Yes, you see, you see, and, and, the, and if you and if you noticed, if, uh, if if the listeners probably next time they watch him, they can notice this too. The preparation for his touch shots. In other words, when he's getting ready to 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 hit a big forehand, he can at the last second change it and turn it into a drop shot, and you don't yes. see that until the last second. Uh, and that, that's that's not that, that's not something that you can easily develop, but but he already has that type of risk control. So he's talented. He's very sound. And more and 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 to and to and to add to all of that, he's mentally fair. He's mentally a cool customer. You don't see him too many times lose his temper, or you don't see him too many times. Uh, falter for a long period of time. In other words, he might get tired. He might have played a match this year or two where he got tired from a long week or what have you and played a bad third set, maybe a bad final set and lost. But you don't see him give away a string of three or four games in the middle of a match because he cannot recover from a certain game or a certain point or a certain event that took place the previous game. Actually, it's very interesting what you're saying that because uh, this year uh, in his uh, loss against Diego Schwartzman at the US Open, yes. uh, I was really uh, shocked because Luca Pui, again, you know, he's not someone who's breaking rackets or yelling. Yeah, he was internalizing something, and you know that 
his emotions or something. He couldn't shake off when Schwartzman called for the trainer and then Schwartzman started playing well. So I yes. that's something affected him. And I was really surprised because I didn't yes. uh, in that match for Puri to yes. give that away. It, completely. It was completely out of out of character for him. And uh, and I believe players like that, when they have this once or twice out of character moments, it, it, it sticks with us and we remember it very well. And and uh, and that's what I was going to get to next is, is that moment which against Schwarzman with Puy. Now I don't know if you remember many many years ago when Bjorn Borg used to play. He used to be the uh, the the you know the people who are older will remember him. He never had any conversation with anybody. He was cool as ice on the court. But guess guess what? That one time. Uh, in the 1980 Masters semifinals against John, against, uh, or in the in the round robin match against John McEnroe, he actually argued a call and he got three point penalties against him in a row because he kept on arguing and wouldn't go back to play. And that was one of the surreal moments in the history of tennis. To all of a sudden see Borg lose his cool and actually get point penalized because he wouldn't stop arguing with the umpire. And mm-hmm. and if you remember and and also remember. Um, uh, Roger Federer, who's, who's usually, of course, Roger Federer will show his temper once in a while, but he'll never go out of control, right? But there was a match, I, I can't remember which match, but it was in the Canadian Open in, in Miami string of ma- uh, tournaments several years ago where he completely lost his cool. Yeah, and he, and he, and he slammed. Djokovic, he broke his back. Exactly. In 20, and I think, 2009. Exactly. And also, didn't he do the same when one time when he lost to Guillermo Cañas? Two, two, two tournaments in a row? Did yeah, I think the second against? time in 2007, I think. When it's possible. It's, I'm not sure. But yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, we, we all remember the incident that you're talking about. And uh, yeah. and it's just, you know, that's just an accumulation of uh, when, when a player is usually cool-headed and seems to be serene on the court, that doesn't mean inside their head they're that way. And uh, so yes, it is possible that once in a while, just like just like uh, Federer had that one at that one time, or Bjorn Borg had it back in 1980, or or Puy had it against Schwartzman. That'll happen once in a while. But uh, Puy's overall uh, focus and concentration has um, resembles the type of focus and concentration that you need to be successful in the top at the top level of the game. Now, since you know Pui so well because you followed him, do you like his coaching arrangement, the team he has around him? you think this is the package that's going to take him further? Uh, um, that team? You're, talk- you're talking about Dominic team? No, no, Pui's team, uh, his coach. You Eman- think, uh, yeah, Emmanuel Frank, yes, yes. Yes, yes I, yes, I think, uh, well, his coach, his main coach is actually a, an excellent coach and uh, with whom he has a very good, um, with whom he has a very good dialogue. And I believe, yes, I, I, to me, Sakib, you don't change a winning formula. And I think the formula that he has right now is a winning formula, and he needs to keep this going for a while. Now, here's, where, where the, here's the trap not to fall into. Just because in 2018, he, might not, he may not you know, improve up to being a top five player. Maybe, let's say, he, finished the, he finishes the year, uh, I don't know, number seven or eight, and doesn't reach the finals of a major, but still has a fairly solid year. That doesn't mean necessarily that it was a failure, right? So, so it needs to um, just like just like in the women's, you can't really count a, a lot of people would consider Pliskova's year subpar, but uh, let, let's still consider the type of accomplishments that she's had. It's the same with it's the same with Puy. 
I think the only time a coaching arrangement should be should be changed while a player is developing is if there's some sort of a catastrophic personality clash between the player and the coach, or if there's some sort of a situation where the coach wants to absolutely drive the player a certain way and the player absolutely refuses to go that on that road. Those are the only times that you should change the formula. If you have a winning formula like Puy has with Frank and the rest of the uh, uh, or the rest of his coaching team, as long as this the trend that they're in continues, they should stay together. Okay, it's very interesting, and I'm tempted to throw in a very uh, compelling uh, example. At least on Twitter, a lot of people suggest that uh, Dominic Team should part ways with uh, Gunther Bresnik because you know they are overplaying him, and people are confused that this kind of a talented guy is just not able to get over the hump. He's, you know, seen as the next guy for a few years now. So what do you yes. see in that coaching arrangement? What's going wrong? Is it the coach player or is this something they'll figure out yeah. soon? I, I, I would have a hard time blaming the coach there or putting any type of uh, blame on the coach. At some point, Dominic Team has... One thing, you know, we've talked a lot about coaches during this uh, this um, podcast and we're maybe we're... Uh, we're underscoring that a little bit too much because at the end of the day, it's the player that has to go out and execute. And again, given an example, given the example of Roger Federer, didn't didn't Federer have one of his best years without a coach during his career? So yes, it's possible. Although although Severin Lutti has always been there, so well, I guess that would, that was not necessarily a good example. However, having said that, Dominic Team has a lot of talent. But I have a quest, I have my questions or I have my doubts on how much Dominic team actually does on the court thinking during the points. I mean, sometimes, you know, when you're a baseline player and you can create, you can, you're a shot maker, you can sometimes hit a dime that once someone places on the corner of the court. Dominic team is that kind of player and he likes hitting these shots and sometimes he's, he's spectacular at doing them. He's got sound technique. But it seems that he has a problem knowing what shot to use when. Now, is this is this because he's not well coached, or is it because he's being told by his coaches on on where he sh- where and how he should channel his talent during the points? But once the point starts, he no longer thinks that way, and he just automatically goes back to his old habits. I mean, that's that that's something that we would need to know. But I'm I, I'm suspecting. I'm suspecting that it's the latter. In other words, uh, Dominic Team, because sometimes he makes like if he makes some incredibly rushed decisions during points. He will be he will be rallying and he will get a routine forehand and he will top spin it in and then in the next shot his his opponent will hit a shot that will kind of push him out wide and on the stretch and he will go he will try to go for a flat out winner on that shot. I don't think his coach is telling him to do that. I think that's just a shot. That, that's just a decision that he makes on the spot. So uh, you know, I'm, I'm not sure how. I, I have my doubts about his on-court IQ, and when I when I say that, I mean um, his tennis IQ in the sense that uh, the, the 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 ability to make a decision quickly during a rally and put that into uh, put that into execution. Okay. Before we wrap this up, uh, let's continue. One more question. Uh, one more observation on team. So novices mm-hmm. like me who who play tennis, you know, once or twice a week, of course, you know, not at your level. So we all think, uh, at least the majority of us think, that Dominic Team is kind of playing a clay court style tennis on hard courts. He's giving up too much yards. 
he's standing behind and taking big cuts. So is this mm-hmm. something that can change? Because his mindset is of a play court player, but on hard yes. courts, is, is giving up too much territory part of the problem? Yes, it's an excellent question, and I will and I will from while while I'm answering while I'm discussing this about team, I will jump to another player who had a similar issue and who struggled through it too. But uh, yes, Dominic team. First of all, team in, in in his position has to, probably needs to decide what type of game he wants to develop. Does he want to does he want to develop the type of game that will be successful on a on clay, or does he want to develop a more aggressive game and try to become try to be more successful on faster courts in 2018 or in 2019, and then and then channel his uh, his resources and his uh, his practice patterns, and at the same time his strengths in that in that direction because you don't want to be in between you don't want to don't want to do this you don't want to do this this where you're practicing on clay court season you're practicing according to the to clay and on hard court season you're practicing according to hard court season that just doesn't work even top players have tried that in the past and it didn't work okay and uh, and I and I can give examples of that but to cut the but but to cut it short to keep it uh, brief I'm going to move on to another player. Let's take Grigor Dimitrov, who struggled for a couple of years or for about 18 months, right? Past, he reached the semifinals of Wimbledon. When was that? In 2014, am I correct? Yes, that, that's it. In 2014, he reached the semifinals of Wimbledon. And at that time, we, we all thought, okay, this is it. He's breaking through. He's got the talent. He also has an all-around uh, game. He's got great uh, technique. And then he struggled for for the next 18 months. I felt that Dimitrov was trying to become the best, was trying to improve his game according to all surfaces. I mean, he was, was he needed to make a decision: is he going to become this athletic, consistent, top spin, touch, long rallies type of player, which he can, or is he going to become this aggressive, sometimes flatten out his shots, developing a big first serve? And, uh, and 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 taking the initiative type of player, which would be on hard courts, which he also can. And I think for about a year and a half, he was stuck in between. He didn't he didn't choose one way or the other, and 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 therefore he performed under under his potential on both on both surfaces, slow clay courts and fast surfaces. But now lately, he's he's, he's been doing a lot better. Uh, this year, especially, he's done a lot better. But if you noticed this year in his matches, he's especially if, even even as early as his loss against uh, Nadal in the Australian Open, now he's he's committed to actually going for his shots, cutting the cutting the angles, stepping into the baseline, using his technique at the net, following his big first serve with a big flat first first shot. So he's chosen a direction. He he's now decided that he's taken the decision that he's, he's determined to develop his aggressive game. And when you're, when you're that determined and you focus on one direction, then you can improve. Let Dimitrov first win, become successful on a specific surface. For example, let him win Wimbledon or US Open to break through. And then you can go back and work on his game in the, in the other surfaces too. Once he's developed that, that, uh, that confidence and he, and he, uh, and he overcame that first high barrier. Then you can go back and focus on on other surfaces. You will see this pattern even with elite players. A lot of a lot of elite players, the number one players, have first mastered 
a certain surface, became very successful, probably won their first major on that surface, and then went on went on to develop their, their games on other surfaces. But you cannot do in between while you're developing. And that may be exactly where Dominic Team is stuck too. Okay. So that's brilliant analysis, Merit. I mean I'm gonna replay this. Uh, yeah, I hope I ho- I hope I explained it well. I, I no, it's, it's, a, it's a hard concept to explain, but but at the same time though, Sakib, I will add this. Thank you, by the way. But I will add this. I, I, I think I, I consider Dimitrov to be a to be a very high IQ player, even on the court, during points. And uh, and when he's playing bad, you couldn't tell. But that's because he's making mistakes, not necessarily because he's playing the wrong points. But I find Dominic Team in matches where he's not playing well. In other words, in matches that you would consider a player to to play badly. He's not just playing badly. He's also making bad decisions. Hmm. So uh, but it's, 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 I don't know. I'm, uh, I, I'm less hopeful about team becoming an elite player than I am about Dimitrov becoming an elite player. Let's put it that way at this stage in their career. Okay, so you're still very bullish on Dimitrov even though he's slightly older. and. Uh, yes, I'm still, yes, I'm still holding out my, my hopes on Dimitrov becoming an elite player. Absolutely. Okay, so uh, Mel, thanks a lot for this conversation. I know we've you know gone way over an hour. Uh, you're very generous with your time, but definitely you know we'd like you to be visiting this podcast again, and we can you know with Anand is here, we can pick your brain collectively and you know engage in more meaningful conversation. Absolutely, uh, I'd be glad to. Thank you for it, having. It's me. been a pleasure. <laughs>